The following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord. From the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 12 through 26, and 1 John, chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we are finishing up this last sermon in our series on the Apostles' Creed. If you're just joining us, we've spent the last 12 weeks going line by line through this ancient Christian creed. And just to let everyone know, uh, our faith is not evolving. Christianity does not need to be modernized. In fact, as Christianity, quote, modernizes or evolves, it changes into something totally different. Many churches, even in our city, have the name of Christ or Edwards or Luther on their building, but they are not preaching the same gospel as Christ or Edwards or Luther. Christianity is only authentic when it is preaching, believing, and living out the implications of the same gospel that Jesus taught. This is what Jesus told us to do in his great commission. Make disciples, right? Baptize people and teach them all that he commanded us. So that's what we've been doing these last three months. We've been studying the kind of unique claims of Christianity. We've been exploring the beautiful land of Christian orthodoxy, and today we come to its final glorious peak. We said in the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. In some ways, now this is actually going to be part two of the sermon that I preached on when we preached on On the third day, Jesus rose again. It was in that sermon that I spoke about 
the resurrection of Christ, what that means. And so in ways, this is going to be part two, what the resurrection means for us, that when we say we believe that our body is going to get resurrected. If you can remember back, resurrection isn't life after death. Resurrection is life after death. Life after death. So when we say that Jesus rose again, we do not mean that he was resuscitated. We do not mean that his spirit is alive while his body disintegrated in the tomb, like Jesus is alive in heaven, spiritually speaking. When Christians say that we believe in the resurrection of Christ, we mean Jesus really died. His spirit went to the place of the dead while his body was in the tomb. But then through the mighty power of God and his own spotless, righteous life, Jesus beat death and his spirit returned to his body, reanimating it and changing it into a new immortal body, a body that could never be killed again. An eternal I'm going to put these two words together just to confuse you. Spiritual, physical body. That's what Paul says later in this chapter 15. See, Jesus in this spiritual, physical, real body, this new, and new recreated body was seen by all of his apostles. His brother James, who at the time was a hardened skeptic, yeah, I know my brother. I've lived with him my whole life. He's not God. I can testify to that fact. Then he's crucified. James probably said, see, I told you. Then Jesus shows up again. He goes, okay, I was wrong. My bad. Now I'll write a book. <laughs> I'll write a book with my own name on it. Put it in the Bible. There it is. He gets converted, right? Over 500 witnesses see the resurrected Jesus. Eyewitness accounts. This single event, the resurrection of Jesus, is what gave Christianity its world-changing power. A subversive power that would eventually overtake Rome in less than 300 years. Where the emperor would then say Christianity is now our religion. Where it was illegal before, they're condemning it. It becomes the official state religion. And yet, in the midst of this, listen... Here's the deal. There were still some people who thought, who cares? What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with anything? And it's easy for us to get caught up in that same thing. What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with anything? I got to pay my bills. I got to raise my kids. I got to go to work. I got to get up in the morning. I got to go to bed. I got so much stuff to do. What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with anything? Isn't Christianity really just about loving your neighbor? Like, who cares about the resurrection? Isn't it really just about being nice? Can't we all just be nice? No, actually, that isn't what Christianity is primarily about. Christianity is primarily about resurrection, plain and simple. See, the desire to kind of amputate the resurrection for Christianity is nothing new. This resurrection has never been a convenient doctrine in Christianity. Never. In fact, within 30 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, there were people already teaching the resurrection doesn't matter. Don't be weird. Don't believe weird things like that. Why? Because their culture 
like our culture, had a different story about death. See, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, they believed that death extinguished life completely. Or at best, it led to a permanent but shadowy existence in the underworld. Anyone who was anyone, anyone who was educated thought the idea of real physical life in the afterlife was laughable. Nobody thinks that. Didn't you go to college? Haven't you sat through comparative religions? Come on. Grow out of that primitive belief. But here's the deal. Here's the problem. When you're looking in at people who believe something you believe is asinine, but then you look at their life and you go, but I like that actually. I like what's being created there. I like what's going on there. Something new is happening there. They believe weird things, but let's just throw that out. Let's look at their life. See, at this time, when this was written in the early first century, Christians were making real strides that have never, had never happened before in the history of the world in the realm of human rights. Women weren't being mistreated like they were in Greco-Roman society. Children and orphans were being loved and adopted and taken care of, unlike they were in the Greco-Roman society. See, the Egyptians and the Greco-Romans practiced infanticide. Now, we do too. We call it abortion. If you didn't want your child, specifically if it was female, you could leave it outside and expose it to the weather and just let it die. A papyrus from Egypt, that's an ancient document, an ancient paper. Notable, it's, it, was, it was dated 1 BC, okay? One year before Christ illustrates this pagan attitude. It was a normal, common attitude. This guy's name is Hilarion. That's which is kind of hilarious, I think. Hilarion, he writes from Alexandria to his wife, Alice, at home in the interior. This is what he says. I put, the, oh, there it is. This is what he says. He's writing to his wife. I beg and entreat you, take care of the little one. They had a child at home, a son at home. <clears throat> and as soon as we receive our pay, I will send it to you. So he's away on work, on business, writing back to his wife. If by chance you bear a child, so he's gone for a while here. If it's a boy, let it be. If it's a girl, expose it. Sounds like he's literally describing, take out the trash. Oh, there's a chore you might need to do when I'm away. Just sit your baby outside if it's a girl and let it die. Greco-Roman culture. How many, how many text messages by men have been sent to their significant other, their girlfriend, their one night stand that say basically the same thing? I'll drive you to the clinic. See, in the midst of that culture of death, Christianity, Christians would see a baby set outside and they would go scoop it up and bring it home and raise it as their own. And people are looking in and going, there's something different about these people. See, Christians were literally changing the culture, changing the way the culture experienced 
life and death. The Christians were willing to inconvenience themselves for the sake of these children. This led some people, not many, not all. It was a slow change. People to look in and go, I want to be a part of that. I want in on that kind of world. That's a more humane world. Let's make the world a better place together. Let's do more of that in this society that's full of death and judgment. But, okay, but hold on. Let's do that together. But the resurrection of the body? Come on. Really? Let's chuck that silly idea out the window and let's just do good together. Forget about doctrine. Forget about the reality of the resurrection. Let's just be nice and be good together. Now, this leads the Apostle Paul to write one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. You can open up to it now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We don't have time to go through the whole chapter. I wish we did. Uh, This entire chapter is broken down into 58 verses. It's one long apologetic or one long argument or defense of the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. It was written for people who thought, Christianity, something about it looks appealing, but chuck that idea of resurrection. Let's get that archaic thing out of here. In verses 1 through 11, Paul gives them the historical reality of the resurrection. It's not a feeling. It's not a good concept. It's not just theology that's out there somewhere. No, no, no. The gospel is rooted in historical facts. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus was resurrected. We all saw him, Paul says, 500 of us together. He also kind of hints at where his argument's going. His thesis is is embedded in his introduction there where he says this, this, that the grace that we receive from God leads to his hard work. Something he says, I I believed grace, I received grace, and therefore I worked harder than any of them. So somehow receiving this historical reality of the gospel leads to him working really hard. It's not just a gospel of free, cheap grace that I receive and it doesn't do anything in my life. It's in verse 10. Then verses 12 through 26, that's what we're really going to study this morning. Paul unpacks the importance of the resurrection. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus is like a coat rack. Everything good in Christianity hangs on it. If you take away the resurrection, the whole thing comes down. There are no Christian social values. There are no, nothing in Christianity can stand. If you take the resurrection away, Christianity doesn't exist. Let's start in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, I need to look for a different job. What we're doing here this morning is pointless. Keep reading. And your faith is in vain. Oh, but it makes you a better person. Doesn't matter. Oh, but it's good for society. Doesn't matter. If Christ has not been resurrected, it's in vain. And we should throw it out the window. Keep reading. 
we are even found to be misrepresenting God. So everything we say about God is not true if the dead are not raised. Because we testified about God that he was raised, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Okay? The resurrection isn't about God being somehow, you know, a nice God, grandpa in the sky that just passes over your sins now. No, no, no. Either Christ died for us and Christ was raised for us or there is, we're still in our sins, period. Now, I've spent the last 12 weeks really talking about that simple fact, so I'm not gonna spend any more time about it this morning. I'm gonna move on to the next one. I wanna focus today on what we call Christian hope. Look at verse 18. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that doesn't mean people fell asleep in church, just so you know, Falling asleep in Christ is not what you do at minute 20 during my sermon. Falling asleep in Christ is what people do when they die who are in Christ, okay? They have, when they have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, let me say this. If your faith only impacts your life right now, that's all it is in this. So if your faith in Christ gets you a better job, gets you a better wife, gets you a more comfortable life, we are to be pitied, Paul says. Our faith is meant to have greater hope than, than the pleasantness of our personal experience in this life. The pleasantness of our family. Look what it keeps saying. We are of all most to be pitied. Why? Because they were being persecuted. They were making sacrifices. They weren't experiencing pl a pleasant life right now and here, here and now. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, here's what he's saying. I'm going to pause right here. Christian hope for the future hangs on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if there's anything we need in our cultural moment today, it's hope. And what we'll see here is that Christian hope isn't the same thing as, you know, the, we're not using that word in the same way we typically use it when we talk about hope. See, like, I hope it doesn't rain on my wedding day. I hope I can get a full night's sleep tonight, every parent said. Amen, please, Lord. When we use the word hope, typically in our culture, we're basically making a wish. We're just stating a desire of our hearts. It's hanging on nothing. It's just out there in the universe. But there's no certain. There's no certainty. Right? You order a steak. I hope they know what I mean when I said medium rare. <laughs> I'm hoping they know what I'm talking about. Right? Now listen, that kind of hope honestly, doesn't really affect my life very much. And it might actually make me more anxious sometimes. I hope I get a good night's sleep. I have no control over it. I don't know what to do, right? But Christian hope is different. Look at verse 20 through 23. If in fact, I love, he's talking about hope and he's dealing in facts. 
If in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all who are in Christ be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Here, Paul is telling us that what happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus was, quote, the first fruits of a resurrection harvest. The term first fruits refers to the first sample of an agricultural crop that indicates the nature and quality of the rest of the crop. Okay, so here's what he, farmers go out, they just, you know, pick a first fruit, they bring it in and they're sampling it. They're tasting it. What's the future harvest going to be like? Therefore, what Paul's trying to teach with this analogy, Christ's resurrection body gives Christians a foretaste of what the resurrection bodies of believers will be like. So in other words, when we look at the empty tomb and when we look at the resurrection of Jesus in his physical body, we're looking into our future. See, when we look back, I love it. We're looking at a historical fact, a historical reality, but that is rooted in a hope for us. So when we look back into the resurrection of Jesus, we get a glimpse into our future. And as certain as that fact of resurrection was, that's as certain as our future resurrection will be. Now, why is that so important? Here's my pre premise this morning. If we don't know where we're headed, we don't know how to live our lives appropriately now. Can I ask you this morning, what are you here for? Not just here. On earth. What are you for? Like, what are, what are you for? What is your purpose? Why are you on this planet? Parents, what are your kids for? Why do they exist? Listen, usually when we create something, we build something, we begin with a specified purpose. I want to accomplish this, so I'm going to build this thing to accomplish that. Think about it. I got a little picture up here. We should be all familiar with this. Do I have a picture? There we go. Look at that beautiful piece of machinery. That is a John Deere combine, if you didn't know. And that thing was created to deal with a very specific purpose. It was meant, if you, you drive five minutes outside of our city, you see these in the field most of the time. It was created, what? To harvest corn. To separate the corn from the waste and do it as efficiently as possible. Now, we're, most of us are from the you know, Midwest. We know that. We get its purpose. And so when we see it out in the field, we know what's going on, right? But if you imagine, this is hard for us to imagine. Imagine never growing up and seeing that thing, right? Imagine that. Just look at it. That looks like a transformer to me, <laughs> right? That is a monster. That's what that thing is. Now, imagine this. Imagine... 
You begging your parents, right? You, you, your parents are wealthy, right? They're rock stars and movie stars and they got all the money in the world. And so you beg them for, listen, mom, all my friends at school, they all got Bentleys, they all got sports cars. They're, nobody spends less than half a million on a car. And your parents, all right, you know what? I'll spend half a million. And you wake up that morning and this is what they've given you. You've never, you've never seen it before. You come out, it, well, it's got four wheels. I it, think it moves. What is it for? You're thinking, well, it, I'll drive it to school. <laughs> My date better not wear a skirt when we take her to prom, right? I'll get her up in there somehow. Right? Now, could you do those things? Could you take it to school? Could you go to prom? Yes, right? You could. Everyone on the highway would hate you, <laughs> but you could do it. Now, listen, what am I saying? You could do those things. You get this thing, you can figure out something about its purpose. Okay, well, it's meant to drive. I can drive the thing. But that's not a, that's a half million dollar vehicle right there or more, but its purpose is not to drive you to school. Its purpose is to harvest corn. You would not be realizing its full, its potential. You would not be using it in the way that it was specified to be used. Now listen, you can get rid of the picture. Now, here's my point. The same thing is true for the human being. Parents, when you give birth to a child, you've made a child, here it comes. You get it, doesn't have instruction manuals. What is this thing for? Right? You get your own body, you come out. What do you say? What am I for? Why am I here? Now you're going to live your life trying to figure out what it is. Just like if you got this, that combine, you're gonna figure out you could drive it. But you never may figure out, oh, I was created to harvest corn. That's what that big spout is for. That's what those big things are for. Okay. You may never find out what you're for just from your experience. If you don't know why God created you, you won't know how to live the, the life God has created you to live. You won't know how to raise kids to live the life they were created by God to live. And in this text right now, Paul is showing us what Christians are for, what people are for. Now listen, the catechism answer, right? What's the end of life, what's the purpose of life? The catechism answer is easy, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. <laughs> but then if you've ever had children, if you've ever told them that, they go, okay, we got it. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that look like? What does it look like to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Here, Paul puts some flesh on that idea for us. He says, listen, glorifying God and enjoying him forever, the purpose you were made for looks like the death and resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 24. Building off the, resurrect, the, the reality of the resurrection of Christ, this is what he says. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to destroy is death. Now listen, that word end, in the Greek, that word is called telos. 
okay? And telos literally means end or goal. This is the end for which God created the world. The reason anything exists is for this purpose, so that Jesus Christ can be over all. This is what we were created for. This is what our children were created for. Let me state this simply. We were created to live for Christ, to die for Christ, and to be resurrected to live with Christ in his kingdom forever. This is our telos. This is the end for which we were created. Now, and this is what a telos is supposed to do. A telos is supposed to pull us into its vision of the future in order to shape the way we live today. Think of it like this. If you have a telos to be an NFL football player, that's your goal. That's the end. You see your life, you say, my purpose is to be an NFL football player. That's what I want to see. That's your telos. That's the goal. That's the hope for the future. If, now listen, if it's ever going to be a reality, that hope has to reach back into today and begin to shape your life in a certain way. You're going to have to say, I was created to be an NFL football player. That's what I was created for. And then I've got to believe that reality. And then what do I have to do? I have to get to work today. Your goal of being an NFL player is going to lead you to create all kind of, listen, unique habits and rituals. I'm going to have to leave my friends for a while and I'm going to have to work out every day. I'm going to have to study the game. I'm going to have to hire other coaches or, or be a part of other teams. I'm going to have to start lifting weights and going to practice and making sacrifices. My goal for the future, that telos, has to reach back in today or it's just some empty hope. It's not really going to do anything for me. Now, what is that meant to do? Listen, when you wake up sore, here's, this is the problem everyone has. You feel great that first day. I'm changing my life, man. I'm getting on the wagon. I'm gonna start working out. I'm gonna start eating right. And you do it the first time and that first workout felt so good. That's all I gotta do. Put 364 more of these together. And you wake up that next day. Ah, oh, my, I didn't do nothing with my neck. Why does my neck hurt? <laughs> See, if you have a telos, a sure and steadfast telos. What's that? The foot person who wakes up sore, he doesn't, oh, I'm not gonna work out tonight. I need a rest day. No, no, he says, my hope for the future pulls me out of my bed when I'm sore and tired and wanna hit the snooze alarm and it's gonna get me back in the gym. That's what separates NFL players from junior high players. Junior high players, it doesn't matter. Right? You just, you're just wearing too big of pads and you're a ping pong ball out there. Boom, 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 boom. Doesn't matter. Right? You're sore. Take a day off. That's fine. Listen, here it is. The same is true for the Christian, but even more so because this telos is sure and steadfast. Our telos, eternal life with God, 
walking with him on a totally restored and renewed heavens and new earth in totally renewed physical bodies, that telos has to reach back into our today and shape how we live. Listen, it has to shape our daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly rhythms of life. It shapes how we live our life. It shapes how we parent our kids. And if it doesn't, it might mean that we're not really living for that telos. We don't really believe that telos. We haven't really put our hope in that telos. See, that's the problem. The problem is, in our culture and in our, the market today, the Christian telos is not the only one, that's not the only viable option to put your hope in. We need to ask ourselves is our life, is our parenting being shaped by the gospel? The whole gospel, not just the forgiveness of sins, but also the resurrection of the body. Or is it being shaped by a different telos, a different concept of the future? I'm going to compare and contrast two things. The kingdom of God, the gospel, versus the new American dream. The new American dream says all that matters is today. Live for you. Life is too short to live for anybody else. Don't live up to anybody else's expectations. Don't let anybody put any standards on you. Throw off the, the, the reins of your family. Throw off the reins of your culture. Throw off the reins of your ethnicity. Throw off the reins of religion. You be you. Nobody can tell me how to be happy. My biology can't do it. My psychology can't do it. My family of origin can't do it. Live for you. Don't risk anything for anyone else. Life is too short. Don't risk anything for anybody else. Only live for your happiness. Spend every moment of your life doing what makes you happy. Collect things. Collect experiences. You can't be happy unless you've seen everything everywhere. Any moment you're not doing something awesome, scroll through somebody's Instagram who is. Vicariously, you can be there. Vicariously, you can add another thing to your list of things you have to see before you die. You do you. Follow the one thing we give all authority to. Follow the one thing that can, there's only one thing that can tell you who you are. There's only one thing that can make you happy. There's only one thing that's above everything else. Everything must be submitted to this one thing. And that one thing is your heart. Follow your heart. Find your happy. 
Now, this is the most narcissistic telos a person can possibly be driven by. And in the end, what happens? You did you and you died. I guarantee you that. You died having lived your life for you. If that's you and I do your funeral, I'm going to tell everyone. He did him. He was a selfish jerk, wasn't he? I'll say it with a smile on my face so they don't throw stuff at me. Now, here's the problem. I'm kind of joking about it, but here's the problem. This is the cultural air we breathe. This is the water that we're swimming in. We don't even realize how it's affecting us. And even Christian parents, this is how they parent. Any coach that said something about my child, what's wrong with that coach? Any teacher that gave a bad grade to my child, what's wrong with that teacher? Don't they know he needs to be built up? Built him up into A student. Don't tear him down. Put an F, you put an F on my child's paper. What are you doing, you beast? <laughs> See, here's my fear, Christians. We are parenting our children with this telos in mind from our culture with a little Jesus sprinkled in because we want eternal life and we want our kids to know God. And, and, but we really, what we really want from our kids, what we really want them to do is be you. Be you, find your happy, do that. That's what I really want you to live your life for. And this is why, this is the pressure Christian parents are putting on their children and wondering why their children are just as anxious as the children of the world. They're never meant to find their happy. They're never meant to find who they are deep within their heart. The heart, Jeremiah says, is desperately wicked. Who can know it? They're meant to be trained up into their identity, trained up into who they are. They're meant to receive their identity from their family, from their religion, from God himself. Instead, we... I'm fearing we're training our children to live for themselves and their own hope for their life. What are we doing? Well, I want my kid to, you know, pick the right college and pick the right career and then find the right partner to secure a solid middle-class life. They, I don't want them too bogged down. I want them to be able to travel. I want them to have a nice home. I want them to have nice vehicles, nice things. I don't want them to have money problems like I did. I don't want them to have to struggle like I did. I was telling my kids a story about my younger, younger life when my wife and I met. And I said, yeah, that was back. We did this. We did this. That's, that's back when we were broke. And my kids look, you were broke? <laughs> I, yeah, I was. And you will be too. It's called being a teenager. <laughs> and in your young 20s, you will be broke. Be prepared for it. Listen, this idea, this, 
parenting our kids into this upper middle class life. You don't need the hope of the resurrection to live that life. I think we're training our children in, in a lifestyle that doesn't need the gospel to exist at all. We, parents, and we need to be raising our children with the hope of the resurrection as our telos. It makes sense of the struggles of life. It makes sense of why we sacrifice and why we go without and why we are on mission and why we live the life we do. Because we're not living for it right now, we're living for that day. If we don't, we won't live well and therefore we won't die well. Let me ask you, and let me ask you this. Would you rather raise successful kids who find themselves on the upper end of the middle class life? Their kids are awesome at sports. They've got a huge house, they've got a great cars, they go on great vacations. And yet, they're just so busy, they just can rarely attend church. Or would you rather, and, but you know what, these, these upper middle class, they've got everything around their life, they're gonna live to be 95 years old. Or would you rather have your kids choose the life of a missionary, be poor, be often sick because they lack the proper medical aid, who lay their life down for the sake of the gospel and go to some third world country and they die unsuccessful at the age of 35. What would you rather have? Your answer to that question may reveal what you believe about the resurrection of the dead. Later on in this chapter, actually, I'm going to have you go to it. We're going to go to verse 30. Paul, building off this reality of the resurrection of the dead, look what he says here. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? You know what Paul's saying? When I preached the gospel and at, at Ephesus, I got in a lot of fights. I preached against idolatry, and there was a huge, there was literally a huge market for the, the production of idols. And when I preached against idolatry, people went out of business and they wanted to kill me and they beat me up and left me for dead. Why would I do that if I didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead? That didn't make my life better. That didn't go well for me. The reason I preach with those beasts is because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Therefore, I love this statement, I die every day. What? Paul's telos resurrected eternal life with God enables him to practice dying. 
He can lay down his life for God and for others. He can risk his reputation for God and for others. He can risk his body for God and for others. He can risk it all for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because he knows one day we will all die and we will take nothing with us except we have given to God and we have done for his glory and that's what he is for. That's what this blip on a radar called life, that's what we're for. That's why you are where you are, to lay down your life, to die every day for Christ, where you are. This, I'm gonna read a quote from a book. It's one of my favorite books. It's called Death by Living by Indy Wilson. Let me read this for you. If life is a story, how shall we then live? It isn't complicated, just hard. Take up your life and follow him, Jesus. Face trouble. Pursue it. Climb it. Smile at its roar like a tree planted by cool water, even when your branches groan. When your golden leaves are stripped and the frost bites deep, even when your grip on this earth is torn loose and you fall among morning saplings. Shall we die for ourselves or shall we die for others? For most of us, the question is rarely posed in our final mortal moment, although there is glory when it is. Death is the finish line of this preliminary race. Shall we cross the finish line for ourselves or for others? The choice isn't waiting for us down the track. The choice is now. Death is now. The choice is here. Lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands Blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. With an average life expectancy of 78.2 years in the U.S., subtracting eight hours a day for sleep, I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can give my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children and my God and my neighbors, or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam I will still die in the end. Living is the same thing as dying. Living well is the same thing as dying for others. That comes from a man who knows that there's hope in the resurrection. I don't have to squeeze all this pleasure out of this life for myself because I'm getting unthinkable pleasures in the future for eternity. Now, parents, so what does that mean for our children? What are our kids for? How do we practice this with our children? 
Here's what the psalmist says in Psalms 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. Your, our children, the psalmist says, are like arrows. What are arrows for? Arrows are meant to be shot out towards a telos, towards a goal. Whether it be an animal or whether it be a bullseye, that's the telos. I shoot, I'm meant to shoot an arrow out. Arrows are not meant to stay safe and sound in the quiver, in your little family unit. That's not what an arrow's for. An arrow is not meant to stay safe and sound. Parents, our job is not just to keep our kids safe and sound. Our job is to equip our children and to shoot our children out into the culture to make an impact. They're meant to be trained in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They're meant to be shot out into the world to live lives that literally bring damage to the devil's kingdom and build up the kingdom of God. In order for them to do that, they've got to have a different worldview. They've got to understand what they're here for. They're not here just to be a middle-class human being. They're not here just to get a nice retirement. They're not here just to build a quiet little family on a quiet little street. They're an arrow meant to do damage to the kingdom of darkness. Our kids, now listen, we can't shoot those kids out too soon. That's foolishness, right? Send my little four-year-old as a missionary, right? Shoot himself in the face is what he'll do, right? Or get shot in the face. Not wise. You train them up in the way that you go, in the way that they should go. And when, when that wet concrete a different analogy, when that wet concrete of a child's heart becomes hardened and they realize who they are in Christ and why they're here, you can now send them out and they're a strong arrow. And what, are they, what does that child do? We teach our children to pursue the good, to love the good, to speak the truth to a culture who's intolerant of truth, to love the beautiful and to trace everything that's beautiful back to its creator, God. Look at that beauty. It's amazing. God gave it to me. Speak the truth. I don't care how you respond to it. It's truth. Deal with it. These are the children we need to be shooting out into our culture. These children who can be light in dark place. This is who we need to be. Some of us, all of us, this is the people we need to be. Lay your life down. Die every day. And when you do, you practice your coming death and you hope for your future resurrection. I wrote in my Bible in that first, when it said, I die every day, I wrote next to it, live a life that demands a gospel explanation. Why are you going overseas? Because Christ was resurrected and my hope isn't in this life. Why do you give 10% of all, everything you make back to the church and it's all, all of its imperfections? Because I die every day. 
and my hope is in the resurrection. Why do you organize your family around the body of Christ and the word of God? Because my hope is not in today. My hope is in the future resurrection. Why can your kids not do all the practices and not do all the traveling leads? Because it would take them out of life in the body of believers that's meant to shape their loves and point it and direct it towards the telos. See, that's what this gathering does every Sunday morning. We meant to reorient you towards the telos. God is the goal. The future resurrection, that's where we're headed. It's not about this life. It's about then. We get reoriented every Sunday morning. See, our neighbors need to see us Our lives lived in such a confusing way in the midst of this time that we can walk through this crazy world with all of its anxiety and all of its pressures and all of its depression and we can say, I have hope that changes my today. Why can I be peaceful? Why can I have a peaceful prophetic presence in the midst of this crazy culture? Because I have hope, not just in this life, but in a future life. This life doesn't have to be heaven. That life will be. Lay your life down. That's what the resurrection does. It's because Christ has laid his life down for us and he was resurrected. That reality reaches into our today and it changes our today and it reaches all the way into eternal life with God. Now, this meal that we eat here this morning Listen, it does both things. Listen to me. It reaches back when Christ, the night that he was betrayed, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and said, this is my blood shed for you the forgive, for the forgiveness of sins, right? And when we eat it, we look back and we remember the death of Christ. But this meal also, listen, is a foretaste of a future meal. The marriage supper of the lamb that we get to eat after we've heard, well done, my good and faithful servant. And let me just remind you, after we've breathed our last breath in this life, after we've died, the best meal we've ever eaten comes right after death. And this meal is a hope for that meal. This meal that we take in reminds us I don't have to feed myself here. I don't have to get everything I want in this life because God's going to give me everything in the new one to come. Life with him, resurrected body, walking with the God that I love. Now, if you're not a believer in Christ, my prayer for you is you would put your faith in Jesus Christ so that you could have this hope for the future that affects your today. And Christian, if you have diagnosed your own heart and you see, you know what, I am doing life wrong. I say I believe in Christ, but that future reality isn't reaching back in today. I pray that you would confess that sin to the Father. You would repent of it and you would come with open hands to receive the grace of Jesus once again. Parents, recommit. Recommit. We're not raising middle-class Americans. We're creating arrows to be shot out into the kingdom of this world. Let me pray. Father, I I thank you for the hope of the resurrection. A hope that's built 
on the foundation of the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we look into the death and resurrection of Jesus, we look into the past, but we also look into the future. And it's hard for our imagination to even have any handles to wrap our grip around what is that going to look like? What is that going to feel like? It's the ache in every soul. It's the mystery behind every corner. It's the reason why we travel. It's the reason why nothing satisfies us because we were built to see you in all your glory. We were built to walk with you. It's what our hearts long for, Father. Would you let that reality reach back into today and shape the way we live our life? We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in eternal life and let our life prove it. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name.